the triumphalist Muslims have no problem defaming us day and night and day and night. And the Jews are reluctant to say, you know, we've got awful people next door. We're, we don't, we don't like that. We, it's not in our style. I remember when I was uh, at Hillel at BU, I was the faculty advisor for Israel and they said, oh, you know, we're going to have big Israel day event. And the students said to me, we don't want to talk about how bad our enemies are. We just want to be positive. Let's have hummus. Right. It's the, it, it's the right? cherry so, tomato diplomacy. Everyone's going to love us because Israel is the startup nation right. and we invented cherry right. tomatoes. Mm -hmm. Not not yeah. saying while while our enemies are out the door screaming out that we're murderers and yet inside right. Hillel we won't deal with that. We're trapped being liberal even when it's suicidal. Folks, as you know, social media censorship is growing. The best way to support our video work for Israel is to subscribe to our video newsletter on pulseofisrael.com and to share our videos. If you are already a subscriber, then thank you. Shalom, shalom everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Pulse of Israel here in our eternal and ancestral homeland, the land of Israel. Uh, it is wonderful having you, and today we have a very special program speaking with Professor Richard Landes. I don't know how many of you are familiar with him. I've been following him for a while on Twitter, and you should as well if you are not. Um, Professor Landes actually coined the term Pallywood, right? The fact that everything, much if not everything we see in the press and the videos of showing uh, what's going on it's in Ju Judea and Samaria and Gaza, showing the poor Arabs and what happens to them, a lot of that is all orchestrated like Hollywood, hence Pallywood. So Professor Landis coined that term, uh, and he runs a, a blog called the OJ and Stables, which is very critical of Western journalism. And if you're following me, you know I, I am also critical as well. Since retiring from Boston University in 2015, where he was a professor in the history department, today he lives happily with his wife in Jerusalem, where he can write freely of politically correct pressures. And today, Richard serves as the chair of the Council of Scholars at Scholars for Peace in the Middle East. Shalom, shalom, Professor Landis. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. It is wonderful uh, having you. Thank you so much for your time. Again, I've been a follower of yours on Twitter for a while. You have a very, very important voice. And uh, like I, I told you before uh, before we went live, I personally have been on top of the the world of, of Islam and, and the threat of Islamism to the, to the freedom-loving world already since the 90s, call, calling it out, warning. It was already, I believed anyone who could see what was happening in Europe already in the 90s with the vast immigration of Muslims from the Middle East and how it was changing um, the, uh, the European countries, I was warning Americans and Americans didn't wanna listen. They were just happily, happily assisting the Muslim communities organized in America. And I was telling them, guys, don't you see what's happening in Europe? It's gonna happen here and you're, you're assisting them. Well, you've been very, very vocal as a history professor. And recently you just wrote an article pro, pro, pro Proleptic dimitude, why diaspora Muslims have a free hand to act out. So please, what, what is your message, uh, Professor Landis? Let's just start general and then we'll go uh, specifics. All right. So uh, in terms of the article on proleptic dimitude, proleptic is a three-syllable word for the six-syllable anticipatory. 
which means essentially that you act like a dhimmi uh, even without being conquered, in a sense, in anticipation of being conquered. Um, and what I'm arguing is that the completely irrational behavior of our Western elites, and, and you use the term freedom-loving, and I think one of the lessons of the 20th century is that uh, not enough people in the West love freedom because they're throwing it out the window. Um, that very, good, very good and sad points you make. The, essentially, the, the completely inconsistent and erratic and extreme nature of uh, the public discourse in the West, in which, for example, and we saw it recently uh, in the in May of 2021, essentially you have three basic elements to Western discourse about Islam, Jews, and Israel, and Palestine. And that is, uh, on the one hand, that any criticism of Israel is legitimate, um, and anytime Jews or Zionists complain about ridiculous and really hurtful and really dishonest statements like we're committing genocide against the Palestinians or, you know, we're the new Nazis, whatever, um, that any effort to stop that kind of talk is silencing legitimate criticism. So it's open, open, what is it, open game on Jews. On the other hand, uh, where Muslims are concerned, uh, any criticism is viewed as Islamophobia. The most recent example is um, the accusations that the Jewish Democratic uh, senators or congressmen who are asking um, Ilan Omar to clarify why she thinks that uh, Hamas and the United States are on the same uh, plane um, are being Islamophobic. So even the slightest pushback is seen as Islamophobic. And then, and this is what I work on most and what led me to the discovery of Hollywood and stuff, is the degree to which Western media engage in what I call lethal journalism, which is to take Palestinian propaganda and essentially launder it and present it to the West as news. Um, and it's so bad that already by the turn of the millennium in 2000, uh, the Palestinians had perfected, perfected, it's really cheap, it's really, you can see right through it if you see the whole um, feed that they, they send to the offices in the West, um, of staging stuff, staging uh, people being shot, injured, carried off in ambulances, um, brave men entering a building and shooting, and when you have the full uh, the, the full reel, you realize that the building is empty, and that they're all standing around and waiting for their roles to be called and stuff. So, you know, on the one hand, it's real cheap fake. On the other hand, the Western media is just only too eager to present it as, um, as reasonable. And so what I'm trying to argue is that the only way to understand these inconsistencies so some people, Adam Levick and I have an ongoing argument about this, and he thinks it's ideological. And my response is, look, you can explain even 20% of the people uh, being um, uh, ideologues and doing this for ideological reasons, what uh, Michael Prell calls uh, underdogma. 
Um, you know, but the fact that it's such a widespread phenomenon, the fact that which phenomenon you're you're referring to? Which specific this, phenomenon? This, this combination of extreme sensitivity to insulting Muslims and it and and eager willingness to dump on Jews of any any form of Zionism at all and so on. So this 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 radical imbalance. Um, I explain by saying that in fact what they're doing is they're following the rules that Dhimmi leaders have to follow for the last 1400 years under when they live in lands in which Muslims are sovereign. So in lands in which they're sovereign, Jews and Christians have this apartheid Dhimmi status in which they can't give testimony in court, they can't, uh, they can't take somebody to court. Um, so, you know, they're, they're essentially crippled as uh, uh, citizens of any Muslim-run country. Um, one of the basic rules of the leadership was to make sure that none of the members of their community insulted the Muslims. Because if they did, and in some cases even if they didn't, but a Muslim took insulted, at someone, um, it could be really unpleasant for the community, um, including executions, uh, show trials, executions, and even, you know, attacks, uh, including lethal attacks. So the job of the Vimy leader is to make sure that his community behaves well. And I think that's what you're looking at when you see the way, I mean, you know, there was a famous exchange between uh, Sam Harris, Bill Maher, and um, Ben, what's his name? Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck. Yeah. Right. Maher and Harris are carrying on about how, you know, Islam is the sort of mother load of bad ideas right now. And he just goes ballistic. And, and he knows nothing about Islam. Um, but he goes ballistic, and essentially what I see that him doing, and he's learned it from his uh, uh, fellows, um, is to patrol this border and make sure that nobody says things that Muslims will find insulting. So that's my thesis, is if you want to understand the alignment of ideologies and discourses above the statement, the sort of filings above the statement, look at the magnet under this under, and that's the threat. And, and the threat is a double one. It's actual violence from Muslims like the professor, the school teacher in France who was beheaded in the streets and um, the obviously the whole Charlie Hebdo affair, um, but the whole Danish cartoon affair because there were you know people who were killed over the Danish cartoon affair. Um, so on the one hand, there's the actual threat of violence, and then much more pervasive, and I'm right now listening to a podcast by Barry Weiss on this, is the fear of cancel culture. In other words, if you're too vocal in defending Israel, then you really have to worry, or if you're too vocal in criticizing Islam, regardless of Israel, if you're too vocal in criticizing Islam, then you are subject to shaming and uh, ostracism, canceling by your fellow progressive colleagues. Right. And that's what's happened to academia. It's just, it's, it's pathetic.
So you know what? Let, let's go that directly into what we titled this, which I used from language from yourself, and that is the exact language. Islamism, the biggest threat to humanity, intentionally ignored, right? That's your wording, intentionally ignored by the progressive West. Why and how uh, can you explain that the, the Western leadership is intentionally ignoring the threats of Islamism? Well, you know, you can start with um, Andrew McCarthy's book, Willful Blindness, which was he was the prosecuting attorney in the case of the um, the well, it was the first attempt on on the World Trade Center in 1993. And, you know, he just ran into one person after another who didn't want to go there. Um, and uh, the other obvious case is the case of the poor a Jewish kid um, who was killed by uh, the Tsarnev um, brother um, in on the 10th anniversary of 9-11 and, and he and his two friends were literally almost entirely decapitated in their apartment with, with marijuana sprinkled over them because they were dealing marijuana and uh, the cop said, oh, it's a drug-related affair. I'm sorry to laugh, but I mean, it's really Keystone cop stuff. Where um, was this? I don't remember that story. This was in Waltham, in Waltham in 2011. Um, and um, and what happened was, as a result, they didn't, you know, people said to them, what's with this guy Tsarnaev? He used to be this, the, this guy's best friend, and he didn't even show up at the funeral. The cops never questioned him. If they had, if they had even looked up his name in a database of, of problematic people, because already the Americans had been warned that he had been back to Chechnya and he was hanging around with the wrong people and stuff, they didn't look. And so the 2013 Patriots Day Massacre uh, happened. So uh, so those are good illustrations of what you might call, um, well, what Andrew McCarthy calls willful blindness. Um, but the larger thing is, you know, I, I think one of the most crucial ones now, and we see it in 2021 really clearly, is the unwillingness of the Western press to let people know just what kind of a genocidal organization Hamas is. And this goes back, you know, back in, I'm sure you remember the Ramallah lynch. So yeah. the day after the Ramallah lynch, you got this. Uh, uh, um, but just, just to give people's perspective who are not familiar, you're referring to a case where two IDF reserve soldiers uh, got lost when driving to their army base and they ended up in Ramallah. Ramallah yeah. police took them to the police station and then the mob of regular Joe Schmo Arab Muslims in Ramallah stormed the police station and the police basically let them and they tore these two Israeli reserve soldiers. Their fathers just came from home. I'm a reserve soldier. Right. A month a year I go serve. Two guys like me stormed by the mob in the police station in the Order center of Ramallah. Order torn limb by limb, them holding up their hearts and, and their bodies mutilated all on camera right. and video camera. So that's, right. that's the horrific lynch he's referring to. Okay, and, and mind you, this is 10 days after Muhammad Adullah and for the last 10 days, Palestinian television has been constantly bombarded with pictures of an Israeli soldier shooting a gun which was not part of the original scene and Muhammad Adullah being killed. So in intense incitement. And right. the next day, Sheikh Halab Halabaya, I think, gives a um, sermon 
which is broadcast on PATV, saying, Labor could they're all Jews, they're all the same, kill, uh, they're all the same, kill them wherever you see them, have no mercy on them, etc., etc., ranting genocidal speech. The Israelis are then shoot the Palestinian radio station when it's empty as retaliation for what happened. And uh, everybody's indignant, you know, free speech and so on and so forth. <laughs> and the Israelis are saying, this isn't free speech. This is just like uh, Radio de Mille Collines in uh, Rwanda, where the Hutus were blasting out genocidal encouragement uh, during a genocide. And they've been taken to the ICC and the Palestinians should be taken to the ICC because they're doing the same thing. So the New York Times sends uh, their top guy happens to be the husband of the Deborah Sontag, who's the their chief correspondent, and uh, William Orm, he does a piece in which he talks to the Palestinians and they say, oh, Israelis, you know, whatever we say, they consider it incitement. It goes to the Israelis and cites this speech in the following fashion. Israelis claim, you know, Sheikh Halabaya, etc. Labor could they're all Jews, labor could they're all the same, they're all Jews, period. That's the end of the quote. Not a mention of the genocidal material. Now, you know, as a, as a college university professor, an undergraduate in freshman year who did something on a topic like this and quoted a source in this way, you know, I would say, you know, maybe you should find another field to work in because you're just not cut out for this. And yet what Orm did there by silencing the, the genocidal voice of the Palestinians was in my mind, quintessential Vimy, proleptic Vimy behavior. Now, in fact, because he was a journalist here and journalists were being beaten up at the time, it's not even proleptic. He was literally intimidated by these people. And he, that's, you know, he didn't say that because it wouldn't have been safe for him to walk around on the West Bank had he done that. So, you know, but, but that goes across the boards. For the last 20 years, the Western media has been unwilling to discuss this stuff. And as a result, you have a sort of romanticization of Hamas in the West. Um, it, it, people don't understand, you know, they think, oh, these guys are freedom fighters and that's why they're bombing Israelis. If only Israelis would give them their freedom, then everything would be all right, which is just, I mean, it's insane. It, it, let me put it this way. If I were what I call a caliphator, in other words, if I were a Muslim who believed that this generation will see a, a universal caliphate, all of Dar al-Harb will become Dar al-Islam. If you're a caliphater, you can't ask for better. You can't ask the Westerners to do more for you than this. So, you know what? I, I, I want to touch upon uh, your, your, your knowledge, your historic knowledge of, of, uh, of Islam in the Middle East to try to help people understand a little more. Like, again, I'm going to start by saying this isn't anything against Arab Muslims or Muslims in general. No problem with individual people, individual Muslims. Some of them are wonderful. Some of them want to want to live peacefully um, uh, and live in the West as Westerners. Okay. The problem is the, the the an aspect of Islam which is about the caliphate and taking over the world and bullies its own 
Ar Muslims to toe the Absolutely. line um, uh, and threatens them from, from, from being able to live, live uh, uh, free lives as, as part of the freedom-loving West. Uh, but my question is as follows. One point I try to get across to people is people do not understand Islam. They do not understand the Middle East. And most of this is in the context of when talking about uh, peace talks or two-state right. solution right. or coming to, right? I say, guys, this isn't Kansas. The right. Muslim right. Middle East is a culture of strength. It's a right. culture of power. It's a culture that if you show weakness, they behead you. They know they have control of you and they can get their way. How do we get Westerners, our fellow family and friends, not just in America or Europe, right. even right. here in Israel, in Jerusalem, right. And right. in Gush Etzion, I have wonderful people. They all yeah. talk because we all try to be, we're all value-oriented people. We all believe in peace. Yeah. We're all good Jews. Gotcha. But, but there is a disconnect in understanding, well, good Jews, we are from the Middle East. We have to return right. to understanding our, the area where we are indigenous right. and deal with our enemies according to this culture, not, a cult not according to the culture in Kansas and New York and Los Angeles. How do you help explain that to people? All right, so uh, the first thing is a wonderful expression coined by a, a psychologist back in the 60s who was working with teenage boys uh, and realized that not only could they only think about sex, but they assumed that everybody else only thought about sex. And he called it cognitive egocentrism. So what we're dealing with here is liberal cognitive egocentrism, which is everybody's like me, I had a student in class, we were reading Goldhagen and uh, Browning about the, um, the police battalion, the German police battalion that exterminated the Jews in Poland, the first ones. And we have the documents and so on. And so you got two historians looking at the same set of documents, coming up with very different conclusions. Browning's book is Ordinary Germans. It could have happened to anybody. Uh, um, Goldhagen's is Hitler's willing executioners. These people were enthusiastic, and they're both working off the same documents. And I said to one of them, I, I asked the seminar, um, what do you think, who do you think is the better historian? And one student says, well, I really didn't like Goldhagen. And I said, why? And she said, I thought he dehumanized the Germans. I said, how did he dehumanize them? She said, well, he portrayed them as sadists. And I said, do you know any animals who are sadistic? Isn't that a uniquely human trait to be sadistic? And I think what was happening was she was confusing sadistic, uh, uh, humane with human. And that's the mistake that cognitive egocentrists make, is that they think that because they think humanely, everybody thinks humanely, and to suggest that they don't is a kind of racism. So anytime I talk about honor-shame culture, which you were describing in your own way just before in your question, when I discuss honor-shame culture and how Arafat could not say yes to Oslo, that, that in fact as you pointed out about weakness, negotiation is a weakness. Um, and the only way he could sell it was as a, as a ruse, you know, then we're going to get in and then, you know, the Trojan horse, though, who, who died be right. Anyway, and just again, to give context for people, Arafat actually said in a speech in South Africa, right after the Oslo Accords in Arabic to, to his fellow Muslims, 
This is basically the just like uh, Muhammad's peace tr right. not tre treaty, which back then it wasn't a treaty. And a hudna in in, uh, in Arabic is basically we couldn't win, so we take a break, we rearm ourselves, and then when we're strong enough, then we re uh, then right. then we go back to battle to destroy our enemies. That's what he explained the Oslo peace process was right. to his fellow Arabs. I think he actually was speaking in English because it, it was it was mostly uh, Muslims from India and Pakistan who were there. Interesting. Uh, but it was uh, there's a there's a tape of it. In any case, uh, you know when he did this right after his Nobel Peace Prize uh, Peace of the Brave speech. So it, double game, okay. The point, let's get back to the, the main point, which is about cognitive egocentrism, which is that Israelis, but certainly the Western peacemakers in Norway and in Washington and so on, couldn't process this statement. It had to be, oh, well, he's just reassuring people. That's interesting that that's reassuring. Um, but he doesn't mean it. He will come to our way of seeing things. And there's this, it's it's a messianic uh, notion that, you know, if we're nice enough to people, they will be nice to us. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a terrible mistake, and it, in fact, encourages aggression. But as one of my friends who, I don't know if he still is because we're not really friends anymore, but as one of my friends who at the time was on the board of B'Tselem said to me when I said, you know, it's not, you got to do, you have to have more, moves than just being nice he said i don't have any other moves right and i think that's terribly important for us to think about that that we don't want to be mean i mean one of the amazing things about the arab israeli conflict is that the the the, the and and we'll get to this in a second uh, uh, the triumphalist muslims um and i'll explain that that in a second but the triumphalist muslims have no problem defaming us day and night and day and night. And the Jews are reluctant to say, you know, we've got awful people next door. We're, we, don't, we don't like that. We, it's not in our style. I remember when I was to, at Hillel at BU, I was the faculty advisor for Israel. And they said, oh, you know, we're going to have a big Israel Day event. And the students said to me, we don't want to talk about how bad our enemies are. We just want to be positive. Let's have hummus. Right, it's the it, it's the right. cherry so, tomato diplomacy. Everyone's going to love us because Israel is the startup nation, right. and we invented cherry right. tomatoes. Not not right. saying while while our enemies are out the door screaming out that we're murderers, and yet inside right. Hillel, we won't deal with that. Right, right, and that's and 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 that's a real problem because you know, fact is, it's not comfortable to badmouth people. Okay, so now let me get to the second thing, because I, this is a distinction that I make that I think is helpful, uh, and it leads me to an alternative term to the deeply misleading Israel-Palestine conflict uh, expression, um, and that is triumphalist Islam. In other words, well, first, triumphalist religiosity. I distinguish between two kinds. There are many more, but two major kinds of religiosity, one which I call um, demotic, that's with a T, not an N, demotic religiosity, which is, you know, it's the people's religiosity, and it, it 
considers manual labor to be dignified. It believes that everybody should be treated equal before the law. Uh, it believes that everybody has their own personal relationship with God and so on. And then there's triumphalist religiosity. And triumphalist religiosity is, um, I only feel good about myself. I only feel that my religion is true when it visibly dominates others. And this was essentially the Christianity of the Middle Ages, the period that I study, or certainly the hierarchical Christianity, because there were demotic movements, um, many of which were quite remarkable and I think had very good relationships with Jews. Um, but the hierarchy of the church was hierarchical triumphalist. And you can see it in the, you know, in the cathedrals, you got a picture of the church triumphant and broken synagogue, blinded, broken lance, cup down. So, you know, the triumphant church and the defeated synagogue. And that's the whole supersessionist idea of, you know, we've replaced you. And But the crucial dimension of this, and it's related to honor-shame matters, is it must be visible. It's not enough for me to feel that I'm superior to you. Other people have to see that I'm superior to you. Now, that triumphalist tradition is, it's, you can find it in any religion. Um, in Islam, it's a particularly strong tradition. It's what gives us terms like Dar al-Islam, Dar al-Kharb, and Dimitud, and so on. Um, so uh, the real problem here is not our relationship with Muslims. It's our relationship with triumphalist Muslims. It's our relationship with people who think that the presence of autonomous Jews who aren't dominated and subjected and visibly inferior to Muslims in this region is a threat to Islam. Now, if it is a threat to Islam, I mean, it's a threat to triumphalist Islam. It's not a threat to Islam. And it's in the interest of the world to say to Muslims, you know, get along with the Jews rather than say to Muslims, oh boy, I can't believe how those Jews are mistreating you. What can we do to help? Right. It's interesting because on a on another societal level, there is a there are a couple of stories that have really framed my understanding of uh of the, the Islamic Middle East culture and this triumphalist culture. Um, and it's also something that the freedom-loving individualist West cannot grasp. And I'll tell you one of these stories. I, and it's actually written by a survivor of the 1929 Hebron massacre. Wow. Right? Okay. He was, I think, a 16-year-old American boy at the time studying in Hebron Yeshiva. Um, I have the book. I have, oh, it's called To Rise Above, Rav Dov Cohen, all right? So he was he was a 16-year-old boy. His, his parents uh, wanted him to study in the yeshiva in Israel, and they found the Hebron yeshiva. He was there. Wow. He he, he writes about, there's like one, the, the book's about his life, but one one or two chapters is about the actual massacre and, his, and what happened. So he explains the following. First of all, he was, his life was saved, okay? How was his life saved? because he and a few others managed to sneak in to an Arab Muslim neighbor's house, okay? And even when the mob of Muslims from Hebron and the outlying area came and were banging down on the on this uh, Arab Muslim's door for him to let them at them and, and, and kill right. the two that were hiding in his house, he said, no, 
they're in my house. Right? So his life was saved because of the Muslim tradition and culture of protecting what's under your roof. Right. On the other hand, one of the other stories he tells is about the baker, the Jewish baker in Hebron. He had an Arab Muslim worker. They were very close. They were at each other's family uh, occasions, right. weddings, whatever, very, very close. And yet on the day of the massacre, this Arab Muslim worker not only killed his, uh, his Jewish boss, the baker, he beheaded him and put his head in the oven in the bakery. And again, to me, the dichotomy of those two stories give over the story that most Westerners do not understand about the Middle East and about the right. culture we're dealing with. That it's, it's beyond having an, a, a, a specific friendship. You can have a very close friendship with your Arab Muslim neighbor, but when the day comes and the community is incited to rise up against the Jew, if you're not protected in their own home because according because their culture is strong and therefore they have to protect you, but otherwise you can be murdered by your own very very close friend who you even consider family, and it's yeah. not some a personal relationship. While important and we should be working on, cannot be understood as that's it. Peace is going to be fine if we have good relations with right. with our Arab Muslim neighbors on the ground. Are you able to to further go yeah. into, into that cultural yeah, aspect? Yeah, yeah. No, I think um, listen. It, it, there's a an expression in Arabic which I can't pronounce well. Um, uh, but uh, the English transliteration is alwala walbara, and it means to love the good and hate the bad. And in one interpretation, in the triumphalist interpretation, it's to love your fellow Muslim and to hate the the infidel. And um, in this tradition, you are allowed to make friends with infidels until the time, and generally in in. In Islamic theology, that's you know, Yom Hadin, um, you know, where you get the hadith about the rocks and the trees and killing all the Jews and stuff. So, um, so there's always this tension between again, again, a friendship as a kind of hudaybiya um, hudna. Uh, um, you're you're going to be on good terms because right now that's the way it goes. And then when things happen, there's another set of uh, imperatives that take over your life. Now, I, I'm not saying that all Muslims are like this, but it happens to be a very strong dimension of, in general, honor-shame cultures. I mean, honor-shame cultures are very much focused on um, what you call uh, solidarity, what Ibn Khaldun called asabiya, um, which is this, this sense of my side right or wrong. And, you know, the modern West was built on the principle of uh, whoever's right, my side or not, that's justice. Um, but today we have this sort of postmodern loopy version, which is their side right or wrong. Um, so we get a bunch of people who refuse to acknowledge that the people they're supporting are part of a my side right or wrong uh, story in which they will tell any story, Pallywood, any story 
to blacken the face of their enemy, no matter how untrue and no matter how they may have benefited from the behavior of that enemy. As for example, the the guy who tells his story about uh, you know the Israelis shooting him at Janine when in fact they not only treated him but then diagnosed that he had a serious illness and sent him to an Israeli hospital to be cured. And then he comes back and he slanders the Israelis. So it's very hard for Westerners to wrap their minds around this and they believe that if they think that way, they're racists. And certainly if you or I say what we say, we will be accused of being racist. Now, uh, not only is that an abuse of the term racist because we're talking about culture, not race. Um, <laughs> so not only is it an abuse of the word racist, but it's a denial of, you know, reality, which is what we had in the Oslo process. We had people who were, and I will say at the beginning, I was enthusiastic, but you know, after a while it became clear to me there was a really serious problem going on here, including the, the Palestinians that I met. I was here in 94, 95, and I joined a group of, uh, of um, uh, dialoguers with Palestinians. And it was clear to me that, you know, the, we were on completely different wavelengths. It's not like two groups of peacemakers were meeting together to get along. These guys were told they had to go, but you know, they weren't, they weren't there for a, a dialogue. And um, so what happened with Oslo was that, you know, um, when he made the Hudaybiyah speech, it was literally denied. Now, you know, BB won, and and the other big thing was the <laughs> the the PLO rewriting of its charter, which was part of the deal, which they didn't do. Which, right. however, Israeli papers reported as you know, this is the biggest day of you know the whole thing, and they did it. And and right. the New York and again, Times understand one of one of the the major the major conditions of this peace deal in the Oslo Accords back in the nineties was that the Palestinian Liberation Organization rewrite their charter, which called for the destruction of Israel. To basically erase that, and that's right. what the Israeli public, the, pe the, the 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 peace process public, were ex were celebrating. Oh, they're going to re right. they rewrote right. the charter, but yet they right. never rewrote the charter, and still today the Israeli still today they haven't never, rewritten it. Right, right, has has so, not admitted that it was never even rewritten. As, right, right, and so um, so but the Israeli public isn't as stupid as the West. Uh, for reasons because they're right up against the, 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 they're right up on the front line. And they elected Bibi in 96 significantly Stop. on precisely this issue. And the way the peace camp tells the story, people like Gotti Wolfsfeld in his book on uh, peace journalism, um, is that Bibi, you know, was the reason why the peace process failed. So you get what I call chronological dyslexia, which is that, you know, the thing that causes the thing that leads to X becomes the, uh, the, the thing that's being caused becomes the cause and the, the cause is becoming the response. And, you know, that's what you get with the rockets and, you know, so we get we get hit with a gazillion rockets, and uh, the press doesn't mention it. And then when we hit back, it's Israel attacks Gaza. So that that whole transformation is, first of all, I think it's proleptic limitude, but I also think it's this sort of we're trapped virtue signaling. We're trapped 
being liberal even when it's suicidal. So listen, you, you live in Jerusalem. I live in Judea and Samaria. I am positive that we're Jewish people are going to grow and strengthen here. Um, what is your, I, I'm not talking about diplom di 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 diplomatically. How are we going to overcome the disconnect between the Western world's misunderstanding of Islam in the Middle East and our own leadership that are in power and running our own country in Israel? Even though we've had Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu all these years, he hasn't necessarily led a, uh, a, a policy using the reality that you and I understand. So how are we going to get out of this? And how, how, what's your vision for, for a, a good, peaceful future for the Israel knowing the conflict and, and the lies that the media put out every single day that brainwash our own people, yeah. even our own friends and family and neighbors? I hear you. Um, so there are a couple of things. Um, first of all, up till now, in our policy, and here I'm speaking more of the West than of Israel, but in general, uh, the West, the democratic West, um, has behaved in such a way as to strengthen the radicals and undermine the moderates. Um, and so, you know, there are there was a piece recently by, uh, I forget his name, Wormser, David Wormser, um, in the Jewish uh, News Service uh, about uh, the situation here, and he's explaining the honor-shame dimensions and so on and so forth. And, and one of the points that he makes is that, you know, if you don't get this, then you're constantly making mistakes. But in fact, there are, by their own values, Arabs who look at the situation and say, Israel is the strong horse, and we're going to back the strong horse. Now, we don't necessarily want to play strong horse politics, but I think we can take advantage of that to then deal with them in a way that honors them when they're honorable. Uh, what's so striking about the Palestinian leadership is how dishonorable it is. They think they're being honorable. But, I, I mean, killing your own, having your own kids get killed, and in some cases with stray rockets, literally killing your own kids so that you can go before the West and say, look at how the Jews are treating me. Right. That's again, for those who are not, not familiar, plenty of the rockets that Hamas shot from Gaza into Israel landed in Gaza. What? Six, 680. 680 rockets. got red. Hamas rockets landed in Gaza and potentially killed many of the children and Gazan yes, Arabs. And yes. but yet they're blaming they're blaming Israel and taking no responsibility. Right. And the Western media, of course, is didn't is not even reporting the story. Right. Uh, so I mean that aside, the the very idea, the very the the cognitive war that the Palestinian slash Arab triumphalists have been waging against Israel since 1948 and the creation of the refugee camps has been to whine to the West about how they're being mistreated by Jews. That's not how a warrior behaves. You don't walk around parading your weakness and your victimization. They're not. These aren't. These aren't. They're not gvarim. They're wimps. They're whiners. And I think there are plenty of Arabs who are ready to say, hey, you know, let's take it in a new direction. I mean, you know, I don't want to be too optimistic, but, you know, democracy isn't 
how can I say, you know, I think Churchill put it well. It's a lousy system, but it's better than anything else. All right. I think that the, the best Arab, of all, right, the best of, of, of lousy options. Right. I think that Arabs who still have a sense of like this, this uh, commitment to hospitality under your roof and stuff, who have real uh, honorable honor shame values might be capable of creating forms of sovereignty that are superior to Western or more successful than Western democracies. Um, democracy, you know, but demotic values, that's something else. And I think that there are, there are resources there for doing it. So, for example, you have in Israeli universities a lot of Arab students. They inevitably are going to feel torn to pieces by what's going on, by on the one hand, receiving an educate a valuable education from the Israelis, but on the other hand, feeling they're betraying their people by doing this. So you end up with people like Bargudi, who graduates from Haifa University and then wants to boycott it, um, and so on. But I, I think that you know these are people who I'm not sure how to do it. I'm an academic, but you know there's got to be ways to sort of mobilize the valuable aspects of honor-shame culture um, rather than, you know, I mean, I think one of the reasons why people don't want to talk about honor-shame culture is they can't imagine how it can change and therefore they call it racism because, because actually they don't believe in cultural change. Uh, and therefore, if you say there's a culture that has to change, you're a racist. But, but I think that's what has to happen. And I, I think that, you know, um, I, I think there's a, certainly enough good faith on the Israeli side. And I think that if we work and, and do something to protect the people whom, with whom we work, um, something can happen. So it's interesting. I, wa I want to take you a step further on what you're saying, because you're saying um, uh, interesting point to, to, leverage, to leverage their honor, shame, culture in order to build upon that for a good positive future together. And I believe that's possible. I talk about this as well. The missing the missing link though, actually, and correct me if, if you disagree, the missing link is our own, is, is our side, is the Jewish side's inability to have honor and self-respect. Again, I'm, I'm yeah. a student of yes. psychology, right? I'm yes. a an organizational psychologist. If someone does not have self-respect for themselves and their own identity, well, no one else will respect you. They will walk over you like a right. like a format. And by right. the Jewish people missing our own self-respect in, 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 in disassociating our own identity as being indigenous to this region, right. disassociating our own claim to our homeland and our religious uh, identity as well, regardless of how religious we are, we are basically making ourselves a floor mat for the Arab Muslims among us to say they don't respect themselves. It's open right. season. Right. I, I, one of the things I was going to say, and you brought it out, is, you know, we can afford to learn some self-respect from them, uh, a, a sense of, of honor. And, and that gets at something that I've been trying. I'm working with this uh, uh, British physicist, David Deutsch, at Oxford, um, uh, he has a theory called the pattern, and it's about, you know, why totally irrational and unfounded stories are so successful when they circulate about Jews. Um, and um, one of the elements of it is this, he, he says, look, this pattern, the pattern, as he describes it, is 
the sort of uh, to use Star Trek language, the um, the what's it called? The something imperative. The uh, oh darn it! There's an expression. The prime directive. The prime directive is it has to be legitimate to hurt Jews. And his point is that all these stories rationalize that feeling rather than cause it. And um, so it's, a, it's an interesting approach. But the, the point in this context is that Jews themselves are subject to this pattern. They, they somehow feel that they, they have to contribute to this legitimization of harming Jews. And, and I mean, I've done a lot of work on this. I call it self-abasement and so on and so forth. Uh, I did a piece which I kind of like, uh, in which I call it a, a proxy honor killing, in which, you know, liberals in the West, Jewish liberals in the West are shamed by how Israel's behaving. Jewish liberals in Israel as well are shamed by how Israel is behaving. Not really shamed by how Israel is behaving, but shamed by how the media portrays Israel right. behaving. Right. And rather than question the accusations, they give in to them and they because they're too nice to actually kill us, they ally with people who want to kill us. And that's how you get all this insanity. But but there really is a self-abasing quality here, which is I mean, you know, I think Freud was one of the masters of this. There's this, uh, I call it uh, masochistic omnipotence syndrome, which is that it's all our fault. And if only we could be better, we could fix anything. So you end up with this kind of, you know, um, I call it the marriage of uh, pre-modern sadism and post-modern masochism. So they accuse us of the most atrocious stuff, and we say, you're right, you're right, I wish I could be better. Now, as you say, there's no self-respect in this. And the worst thing is they, they, they are accusing us of everything they're doing to us. Yes, and, and the projection. And everyone ignores that. Right. I mean, Erwin uh, Kotler put it really nicely. He said, Israel's the only country in the world that, on the one hand, is the subject of, of um, uh, threats to commit genocide against them and is also accused of committing genocide. And it's, you know, I mean, and you get these absurd things. I mean, it actually works well in Deutsch's pattern, which is on the one hand, the Arabs say uh, they're just like the Nazis. And on the other hand, they say the Holocaust didn't happen. So we're behaving like they didn't we're behaving that, that uh, we're behaving like a group that, according to them, never even existed. Right, right. Well, well. First of all, I'm really enjoying talking to you. Thank you so much for your time, Professor Landis. And I want to I want to end with the, with the following point, especially since you are a hit, uh, a professor of of of, uh, of uh, uh, history, Middle Medieval. Age, his, Middle Ages, Medieval. right? Middle, Medieval. Middle, Medieval, Medieval history. One of the things that I've been uh, saying lately. Uh, and again, I've always believed this, but I, I only started being public in using this terminology since the, the Gaza conflict where the media was so skewed, so right. skewed in, 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 in saying the lies of Hamas right. and where you have the anti-Semitic attacks in Los Angeles and New York and London and oh, Toronto and Australia. We're what? talking about since May. Since May, right? Where, where all of a sudden, wait a second, why are people attacking Jews around right. the world 
because of Gaza. You want to argue with them. You, you, you want to protest on the streets. But why attack them? Why scream we're going to rape, we're going to kill your right. women and rape your women? Like, why? Why? So to me, it's clear, and I've said it straight out. To me, the whole cause called Palestine is the most modern and most successful blood libel, anti-Semitic blood libel in all of history, which is basically bringing together anyone who you hate the Jew, you hate Israel. Well, now you have the cause to the to the excuse to, yeah. to get away with it and sound like a, a virtue signal, like I'm all and mighty. I'm hating the Jew because, uh, right. because of the cause called Palestine. What's what's a, as as a student and teacher of Middle Ages, and again, I'm using this term <laughs> blood libel um, because it's basically all lies today, just as the blood lives were back then. What's your feedback of of, of that concept? Right. So, um, how much time do I have? <laughs> you, free, you're free, right, Professor okay. Landis. I want to hear what you have to say. All right. So, first of all, I'm just sent off to the publisher my book, which is entitled. Can the whole world be wrong? Colon, a medievalist guide to the 21st century. Wow. And uh, so the, the blood libel in 1892, Echad Am wrote about the blood libel. And he said, when Jews say to the Gentiles, we don't do that. They say, what, can the whole world be wrong and the Jews be right? And then in 2002, with the Janine massacre, you know, Kofi Annan, Secretary General of the UN, said, can the whole world be wrong and Israel be right? Right, because the well, Jews said there was no massacre. Exactly. This, and they were telling us that we, we massacred. Right, right. right. So, um, so on the one hand, there is this astounding phenomenon in which, as David Deutsch points out, it's, you know, how do you prove it? By showing how many times it's repeated itself. So the history of a delusion becomes the the proof of the delusion. So um, now your question was about, oh, yes. Yeah, so there's this article by um, uh, Hannah Angelica Kamen in Jewish, I think it's in Jewish uh, news uh, service, um, about the Palestinian flag being a symbol of hate. Uh, now, in the book, the first chapter, the first substantive historical chapter is about the Muhammad Adullah affair, um, which happened in the 30th of September 2000. And essentially, I argue this is the first post-Holocaust blood libel to take in the West. It's also the first, I call it first post-modern blood libel because it's not based on, you know, ritual stuff, but it has this same sort of malicious intent of the Jews to kill Gentile children deliberately. And of course, uh, bin Laden picked it up and said, they killed all the children of the world with this murder and so on, and justified his attack in 9-11. Um, so that's the first blood libel of the 21st century. It's also the first blood libel that was spread by modern news media. Also the first blood libel spread by a self-identified Jew, namely Charles Anderlin. Um, so it's, it's, and I think it's the big bang of what we're looking at now. Uh, and I did a, a, a video, which is available on YouTube, called Icon of Hatred, about the impact that it had. 
Uh, and so, and the chapter is also about that. Now, what we're looking at 20 years later is the way in which the very Palestinian cause is a movement built on hatred. The Palestinians are a people who have defined themselves, or at least their leaders have defined themselves. Uh, who knows what the people really think? But the Palestinian leadership has defined the Palestinian people as victims who hate, who are justified in hating, and for reasons that I think proleptic dimitude explains better than anything else, people in the West, well, and also, you know, certain amount of uh, pleasure in reporting news of Jews behaving badly um, eh, have turned the Palestinian cause into a cause of hatred, which is being carried by people who claim that they are for love and peace and understanding. And, you know, that's a suicidal combination. Right. Well, Professor Landis, thank you so much for your, for your time. Really, uh, really appreciate uh, your time and your insights. And keep on uh, keep on sp speaking the truth to wake up as many people as possible. I mean, it's interesting. One of the way one of the ways. What? My truth. <laughs> yeah. The truth. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. Um, uh, it's interesting because I'm le I'm optimistic about the future. I really am, and call me because I'm a religious Jew, and I'm a, I have a belief in the one above everything. Every, every, oh, oh, it's the hundred and fourteenth commandment, right? Okay, so I'm, I'm optimistic about the future. I am I am not optimistic that that Jews or Israeli Jews or enough will wake up to the reality of the challenges of living with this Islamic world, like like we're talking about, in order for us as a people to gain our self-respect, to be able to achieve peace through strength, which is possible, which the Abraham Accords is proof that it is possible with, with the Muslim world, right? But through strength, not through appeasement, not through denying our own identity, our own connection to our own land and appeasement, et cetera. Right. I'm, I'm, but part of how I believe it's gonna, it, it's gonna all end up for the good in the end. And I actually explained this this way to my kids. Wait, wait, wait. Um, uh, that, was, that was some uh, microphone problems. Right. I, this way to my kids, I, I explained to them the art of war by Sun Tzu. Right. Which I'm like, I said, our leaders today are not using this methodology of the art of war, which I'll explain in a second. But it's happening. What's the what's the art of war of Sun Tzu? It's basically use your enemy's weakness against them. So yeah. in today's scenario, what I'm saying is. We're using our enemy's weakness to basically grow their confidence to then act out in ways where in the, in, in, at the end of the day, they're going to push the Israeli public too far. How far that's going to go, how painful it's going to be for us, I don't know. But the more they, but because it's the, the honor-shame culture, the more they see us appease and just the past few weeks, the state of Israel has gone to unbelievable appeasement, even to to canceling uh, the the rescheduled uh, parade in the old city of Jerusalem. It was supposed to be today, and rescheduling it to tomorrow. Uh, just a continuation of, of of appeasement to the to to the Hamas's demands. The more they see us appease and not show any self respect to our to to ourselves. Right. The more their confidence is going to grow, the more brazen they're going to be in their acts 
of terror against us and violence against. In the end, I mean, it's a weird way to be optimistic, but it's <laughs> we're going to be pushed to the wall, right. and the Jewish people are going to get. That's it. That's enough. This is this is the red line. When that red line is going to be, I don't know. Right. Okay, so uh, a couple of things. There, there are actually two dimensions to this. First of all, the Palestinians are using, and and the caliphaters are using uh, cognitive warfare. What Sun Tzu is saying uh, against us with enormous success. Now, I think we can stop that, and then. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is, if we want to turn this around, they have all kinds of enormous weaknesses. Which, you know, I, I joke about how, you know, in the case of Islamophobia and stuff, you literally have people who lead with their glass chin. Um, you know, here they are. I am so sensitive that if you do anything, I'll scream and yell bloody murder. Well, you know, they are susceptible to being shamed and we should be shaming them where appropriate. So, for example, um, the case of these kids who were killed by Hamas. That's mind-boggling. I mean, if you just pause for a moment to think about it, it is mind-boggling. There is nothing in the world that can describe better the difference between Israelis and Hamas than the fact that they will repeatedly put their children in danger for the sake of their PR victory, and they will literally exploit the dead bodies that they cause in order to... to, to illicit sympathy in the West. Now, I think that we should be making a huge stink about this. I think that, you know, there have got to be people in the West with enough of a moral compass to recognize that this is horrendous stuff. So that when, when uh, what's her face, uh, Rashida Tlaib starts crying about dead babies in the United States Congress, right? What about the babies killed by Hamas? Are you crying over them? What she is doing and what a lot of these groups, particularly the ones who are going out yelling, rape their daughters and kill the Jews, are doing is they're conducting a war. They've weaponized empathy. They've weaponized compassion against us. And, you know, if we had some self-respect, we would talk back, but we don't. I have a chapter in the book on, on the, the Danish cartoon scandal. The thing that drove Muslims around the world into a rage was not the cartoons from the Danish newspaper. It was three cartoons, one of which has a dog buggering Muhammad. Another has Muhammad is a pig. And I forget what the third one was, but really grotesque ones that were made by Muslims triumphalist Muslims who wanted to arouse the street. And instead of the West saying, what's going on here? We said, oh, we're so sorry. We're so sorry. What can we do to appease your anger? So I really think that, that we need to shame them. They behave shamefully, right? The, the, the Pope gives a speech in which he quotes somebody saying Islam is a religion, uh, an inherently violent religion. He didn't say it. He actually criticized that point of view, but but that's then spread to the Muslim world, and they take to the streets and start killing people, including each other, because they've been called violent. Now, that's a bad joke. That's a really bad joke, and nobody's laughing. So, yes, I think that there are ways to take this fight to them, um, but it, it 
takes, as you say, it takes a certain level of self-respect, which right now we're not seeing much of. Right. Right. Okay. Well, and up, it's up to us on a positive note. We are helping fellow Jews and Western freedom loving people develop that self-respect to stand up for themselves because ultimately the better future for our children and grandchildren is be, is only possible if we have our self-respect and stand up right. proudly against the evils that exist to be able to bring about a better future. So that's a positive note we're going to end on. All right. To the freedom lovers of the West, not to the Western freedom lovers. <laughs> to the freedom lovers of the West, right? And the East, and the East. And the East, right? And the Arab world. Right. To freedom right, lovers. Well, Professor Landis, thank you so much for your, for your time and your insight. You're welcome. Pleasure. Shalom. All right, everybody. I hope I hope you enjoyed uh, this uh, talk with Professor Lantes. Uh, I was definitely enlightening for me. If you felt this was valuable, please share it. And again, if you are not yet a subscriber to the Pulse of Israel with all the growing censorship, to ensure that you continue to receive the videos that we put out there, which is not politically correct but it's correct, and that's why you should see it and you should share it, then please go to pulseofisrael.com and sign up to our video newsletter. In the meantime, signing off from the eternal and ancestral homeland of the Jewish people, this is Avi Abel of Pulse of Israel. Pulse of Israel, frontline videos from the Holy Land. Support our work by donating today.